Section 7 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Avai in June 2019. Chapter 4 Our Prefatory Work at Thebes. Ever since my first visit to Egypt in 1890, it had been my ambition to dig in the valley and when at the invitation of sir william garstin and sir gaston maspero i began to excavate for lord carnarvon in nineteen o seven it was our joint hope that eventually we might be able to get a concession there i had as a matter of fact when inspector of the antiquities department found and superintended the clearing off two tombs in the valley for mr theodore davis and this had made me the more anxious to work there under a regular concession. For the moment it was impossible, and for seven years we dug with varying fortune in other parts of the Theban necropolis. The results of the first five of these years have been published in Five Years' Explorations at Thebes, a joint volume brought out by Lord Carnarvon and myself in 1912. In 1914, our discovery of the tomb of Amunhotep I, on the summit of the Dra'abul-Nega foothills, once more turned our attention valleywards, and we awaited our chance with some impatience. Mr. Theodore Davis, who still held the concession, had already published the fact that he considered the valley exhausted, and that there were no more tombs to be found, a statement corroborated by the fact that in his last two seasons he did very little work in the valley proper, but spent most of his time excavating in the approach thereto, in the neighboring North Valley, where he hoped to find the tombs of the priest kings and of the 18th dynasty queens, and in the mounds surrounding the temple of Medinet Habu. Nevertheless, he was loath to give up the site, and it was not until June 1914 that we actually received the long-coveted concession. Sir Gaston Maspero, director of the Antiquities Department, who signed our concession, agreed with Mr. Davis that the site was exhausted, and told us frankly that he did not consider that it would repay further investigation. We remembered, however, that nearly a hundred years earlier Belzoni had made a similar claim and refused to be convinced. We had made a thorough investigation of the site and were quite sure that there were areas covered by the dumps of previous excavators which had never been properly examined. Clearly enough we saw that very heavy work lay before us and that many thousands of tons of surface debris would have to be removed before we could hope to find anything, but there was always the chance that a tomb might reward us in the end and, even if there was nothing else to go upon, it was a chance that we were quite willing to take. As a matter of fact, we had something more, and, at the risk of being accused of post-actum prescience, I will state that we had definite hopes of finding the tomb of one particular king, and that king Tutankhamun. To explain the reasons for this belief of ours, we must turn to the published pages of Mr. Davis's excavations. Towards the end of his work in the valley he had found, hidden under a rock, a faience cup which bore the name of Tutankhamun. 
In the same region he came upon a small pit tomb, in which were found an unnamed alabaster statuette, possibly of eye, and a broken wooden box, in which were fragments of gold foil, bearing the figures and names of Tutankhamun and his queen. On the basis of these fragments of gold he claimed that he had actually found the burial place of Tutankhamun. The theory was quite untenable, for the pit tomb in question was small and insignificant, of a type that might very well belong to a member of the royal household in the Ramesside period, but ludicrously inadequate for a king's burial in the 18th dynasty. Obviously, the royal material found in it had been placed there at some later period and had nothing to do with the tomb itself. Some little distance eastward from this tomb, he had also found in one of his earlier years of work, 1907-8, to buried in an irregular hole cut in the side of the rock, a cache of large pottery jars, with sealed mouths and hieratic inscriptions upon their shoulders. A cursory examination was made of their contents, and as these seemed to consist merely of broken pottery, bundles of linen and other oddments, Mr. Davis refused to be interested in them, and they were laid aside and stacked away in the storeroom of his valley house. There, some while afterwards, Mr. Winlock noticed them, and immediately realized their importance. With Mr. Davis's consent, the entire collection of jars was packed and sent to the Metropolitan Museum of Art, New York, and there Mr. Winlock made a thorough examination of their contents. Extraordinarily interesting they proved to be. There were clay seals, some bearing the name of Tutankhamun, and others the impression of the royal necropolis seal, fragments of magnificent painted pottery vases, linen hedgeholds, one inscribed with the latest known date of Tutankhamun's reign, floral collars, of the kind represented as worn by mourners in burial scenes, and a mass of other miscellaneous objects, the whole representing, apparently, the material which had been used during the funeral ceremonies of Tutankhamun, and afterwards gathered together and stacked away within the jars. We had thus three distinct pieces of evidence, the faience cup found beneath the rock, the gold foil from the small pit tomb, and this important cache of funerary material, which seemed definitely to connect Tutankhamun with this particular part of the valley. To these must be added a fourth. It was in the near vicinity of these other finds that Mr. Davis had discovered the famous Ankunatun cache. This contained the funerary remains of heretic royalties, brought hurriedly from Tel el Amarna and hidden here for safety, and that it was Tutankhamun himself who was responsible for their removal and reburial, we can be reasonably sure from the fact that a number of his clay seals were found. With all this evidence before us, we were thoroughly convinced in our own minds that the tomb of Tutankhamun was still to find, and that it ought to be situated not far from the centre of the valley. In any case, whether we found Tutankhamun or not, we felt that a systematic and exhaustive search of the inner valley presented reasonable chances of success, and we were in the act of completing our plans for an elaborate campaign in the season of 1914-15, to 15, 
when war broke out, and for the time being all our plans have to be left in abeyance. War work claimed most of my time for the next few years, but there were occasional intervals in which I was able to carry out small pieces of excavation. In February 1915, for example, I made a complete clearance of the interior of the tomb of Amun-Hetep III, partially excavated in 1799 by Monsieur de Villiers, one of the members of Napoleon's Commission d'Egypte, and re-excavated later by Mr. Theodore Davis. In the course of this work we made the interesting discovery, from the evidence of intact foundation deposits outside the entrance, and from other material found within the tomb, that it had been originally designed by Tothmes IV, and that Queen Taiyi had actually been buried there. The following year, while on a short holiday at Luxor, I found myself involved quite unexpectedly in another piece of work. The absence of officials owing to the war, to say nothing of the general demoralization caused by the war itself, had naturally created a great revival of activity on the part of the local native tomb robbers, and prospecting parties were out in all directions. News came into the village one afternoon that a find had been made in a lonely and unfrequented region on the western side of the mountain above the Valley of the Kings. Immediately a rival party of diggers armed themselves and made their way to the spot, and in the lively engagement that ensued the original party were beaten and driven off, vowing vengeance. To avert further trouble, the notables of the village came to me and asked me to take action. It was already late in the afternoon, so I hastily collected the few of my workmen who had escaped the army labor levies, and with the necessary materials set out for the scene of action, an expedition involving a climb of more than 1,800 feet over the Kerna Hills by moonlight. It was midnight when we arrived on the scene, and the guide pointed out to me the end of a rope which dangled sheer down the face of a cliff. Listening, we could hear the robbers actually at work, so I first severed their rope, thereby cutting off their means of escape, and then, making secure a good stout rope of my own, I lowered myself down the cliff. Shinning down a rope at midnight into a nestful of industrious tomb robbers, is a pastime which at least does not lack excitement. There were eight at work, and when I reached the bottom there was an awkward moment or two. I gave them the alternative of clearing out by means of my rope, or else of staying where they were without a rope at all, and eventually they saw reason and departed. The rest of the night I spent on the spot, and, as soon as it was light enough, climbed down into the tomb again to make a thorough investigation. The tomb was in a most remarkable situation. Its entrance was contrived in the bottom of a natural water-worn cleft, 130 feet from the top of the cliff, and 220 feet above the valley bed, and so cunningly concealed that neither from the top nor the bottom could the slightest trace of it be seen. From the entrance, a lateral passage ran straight into the face of the cliff, a distance of some fifty-five feet, after which it turned at right angles, and a short passage, cut on a sharp slope, led down into a chamber about eighteen feet square. 
the whole place was full of rubbish from top to bottom and through this rubbish the robbers had burrowed a tunnel over ninety feet long just big enough for a man to crawl through it was an interesting discovery and might turn out to be very important so i determined to make a complete clearance twenty days it took working night and day with relays of workmen and an extraordinarily difficult job it proved the method of gaining access to the tomb by means of a rope from the top was unsatisfactory for it was not a very safe proceeding at best and it necessitated moreover a stiff climb from the valley obviously means of access from the valley bottom would be preferable and this we contrived by erecting shears at the entrance to the tomb so that by a running tackle we could pull ourselves up or let ourselves down it was not a very comfortable operation even then and i personally always made the descent in a net excitement among the workmen ruled high as the work progressed for surely a place so well concealed must contain a wonderful treasure and great was their disappointment when it proved that the tomb had neither been finished nor occupied the only thing of value it contained was a large sarcophagus of crystalline sandstone like the tomb unfinished with inscriptions which showed it to have been intended for queen hatshepsut presumably this masterful lady had had the tomb constructed for herself as wife of king Tothmes the second later when she seized the throne and ruled actually as a king it was clearly necessary for her to have her tomb in the valley like all the other kings as a matter of fact i found it there myself in nineteen o three and the present tomb was abandoned she would have been better advised to hold to her original plan in this secret spot her mummy would have had a reasonable chance of avoiding disturbance in the valley it had none a king she would be and a king's fate she shared in the autumn of nineteen seventeen our real campaign in the valley opened the difficulty was to know where to begin for mountains of rubbish thrown out by previous excavators encumbered the ground in all directions and no sort of record had ever been kept as to which areas had been properly excavated and which had not clearly the only satisfactory thing to do was to dig systematically right down to bedrock and i suggested to lord carnarvon that we take as a starting point the triangle of ground defined by the tombs of rameses the second meren ptah and rameses the sixth an area in which we hoped the tomb of tutankhamun might be situated it was rather a desperate undertaking the site being piled high with enormous heaps of thrown-out rubbish but i had reason to believe that the ground beneath had never been touched and a strong conviction that we should find a tomb there in the course of the season's work we cleared a considerable part of the upper layers of this area and advanced our excavations right up to the foot of the tomb of rameses the sixth here we came on a series of workmen's huts built over masses of flint boulders the latter usually indicating in the valley the near proximity of a tomb our natural impulse was to enlarge our clearing in this direction but by doing this we should have cut off all access to the tomb of rameses above 
to visitors one of the most popular tombs in the whole valley. We determined to await a more convenient opportunity. So far, the only results from our work were some ostraca, interesting but not exciting. We resumed our work in this region in the season of 1990-20. to 20. Our first need was to break fresh ground for a dump, and in the course of this preliminary work, we lighted on some small deposits of Ramesses IV near the entrance to his tomb. The idea this year was to clear the whole of the remaining part of the triangle already mentioned, so we started in with a fairly large gang of workmen. By the time Lord and Lady Carnarvon arrived in March, the whole of the top debris had been removed, and we were ready to clear down into what we believed to be virgin ground below. We soon had proof that we were right, for we presently came upon a small cache containing thirteen alabaster jars, bearing the names of Ramesses II and Merem Ta, probably from the tomb of the latter. As this was the nearest approach to a real find that we had yet made in the valley, we were naturally somewhat excited, and Lady Carnarvon, I remember, insisted on digging out these jars, beautiful specimens they were, with her own hands. With the exception of the ground covered by the workmen's huts, we had now exhausted the whole of our triangular area, and had found no tomb. I was still hopeful, but we decided to leave this particular section until, by making a very early start in the autumn, we could accomplish it without causing inconvenience to visitors. For our next attempt we selected the small lateral valley in which the tomb of Tothmes III was situated. This occupied us throughout the whole of the two following seasons, and, though nothing intrinsically valuable was found, we discovered an interesting archaeological fact. The actual tomb in which Tothmes III was buried had been found by Loret in 1898, hidden in a cleft in an inaccessible spot some way up the face of the cliff. Excavating in the valley below, we came upon the beginning of a tomb, by its foundation deposits originally intended for the same king. Presumably, while the work on this low-level tomb was in progress, it occurred to Tothmes, or to his architect, that the cleft in the rock above was a better site. It certainly presented better chances of concealment, if that were the reason for the change, though probably the more plausible explanation would be that one of the torrential downpours of rain, which visit Luxor occasionally, may have flooded out the lower tomb, and suggested to Tothmes that his mummy would have a more comfortable resting place on a higher level. Nearby, at the entrance to another abandoned tomb, we came upon foundation deposits of his wife, Mary Dre Hatshepsut, sister of the great queen of that name. Whether we are to infer that she was buried there is a moot point, for it would be contrary to all custom to find a queen in the valley. In any case, the tomb was afterwards appropriated by the Theban official Sen-Nefer. We had now dug in the valley for several seasons with extremely scanty results, and it became a much debated question whether we should continue the work or try for a more profitable site elsewhere. After these barren years, were we justified in going on with it? 
my own feeling was that so long as a single area of untouched ground remained the risk was worth taking it is true that you may find less in more time in the valley than in any other site in egypt but on the other hand if a lucky strike be made you will be repaid for years and years of dull and unprofitable work there was still moreover the combination of flint boulders and workmen's huts at the foot of the tomb of rameses the sixth to be investigated and i had always had a kind of superstitious feeling that in that particular corner of the valley one of the missing kings possibly tutankhamun might be found certainly the stratification of the debris there should indicate a tomb eventually we decided to devote a final season to the valley and by making an early start to cut off access to the tomb of rameses the sixth if that should prove necessary at a time when it would cause least inconvenience to visitors that brings us to the present season and the results that are known to everyone End of section 7